Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome, lovers of product. Today, I'm here with Bella Rennie, who's the head of product at Trey.io. Bella, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. So uh, overview of my background in a sort of quick spiel. I've been at Trey for about two years now. I was made head of product at Trey about a year ago, and we've grown the team from just me to now a big product design team and a product team of five product managers. And before that, I was in kind of various product roles in the sort of tech startup world in London. Some of them were sort of more European startups. And then before that, I was kind of building things of my own and trying to start businesses, as I'm sure lots of product people can empathize with that sort of slightly, I want to build something muscle that you keep trying to grow. And then actually before that, interestingly, I taught in a sort of area of London that is high on the deprivation scale. And I did the British equivalent of uh, Teach for America, which is actually called Teach First over here. So I did that straight out of university before transitioning into product. Transitioned into product because at the school I was in, you know, as I'm sure a lot of people in the ed tech world can empathize with, it was a absolute dinosaur when it came to anything to do with technology. And I was always a you know, technology kid at school, I'd always have the latest version of the iPhone when it came out. And I would always like to play around with that sort of stuff. And then I got into a place in this school where, you know, everything, nothing was on the cloud. And it was a lot of printing, and it was terrifying. And I did a few bits and pieces and tried to change it and try to build some tools to help change it and realized that that was what I enjoyed doing more. So that's kind of me in the last 10 years. Awesome. Now, tell me a little bit about how you got involved at Trey. What what interested you about Trey? And then let's jump into some of the problems you're solving there now. Yeah. So what interested me about Trey is actually all of the automation side. So in previous roles, I was doing some operational sort of product stuff to try and improve experiences uh, through automation in a number of kind of different ways and different contexts. And I really got interested in automation and kind of what it can do for businesses and what it can do for users as well when they have access to automation. And then through the sort of, you know, London networking space, uh, someone introduced me to this tiny company called Trey, who was doing something interesting. I looked them up, dropped them an email. The CTO called me. He spent an hour giving me the sort of vision of the future that he had. Uh, And that's Ali Russell, who's uh, now my boss. And... Yeah, I came in for an interview, spoke to him and the CEO, Rich. We geeked out over a bunch of stuff. And then that's kind of how I got there. The automation side was the thing that drew me. And yeah, that's how I ended up there before we can kind of talk about what we're actually doing there now. Yeah, talk to me about that. Tell me what you're doing there now and what the big challenges are for you as uh, head of the product org. Yeah, I mean, there's two big pieces, right? There's the the big vision of what we're trying to do. And I think that Every product leader has 
if they're really enjoying their product life, has got a big vision of something that they're trying to achieve. And that's what's really driving them. And we definitely have that at Trey. It's a big, expansive, exciting, all-encompassing vision. And in fact, when an industry analyst actually asked the CTO back when we could have meetings with industry analysts in February, like, what do you want to be known for? His answer, which was great, was everything. And so that's kind of like an exciting vision in the sense that we really want to bring and democratize technology to people who maybe don't have a a coding background. So Trey is a visual programming tool that tries to leverage user experience to allow people who maybe have never used a general automation platform before to access technology they otherwise would need to go to engineering to ask for. So that's kind of the big piece. But then the other challenge that I'm trying to solve or attempting to sort of dig my teeth into, and as is the rest of the business, is how do you scale a product product design and engineering team through kind of hyper growth, which is what we've seen. So it's the kind of vision side and, and how we go after delivering that vision and the strategy towards it. And then it's the people side and, you know, how do we organize teams How do we give product managers autonomy and ownership over areas of the product when there might be crisscrossings between different product managers? And how does design organize themselves so that they can ensure consistency of experience across different areas of the app and all of that? So those are the kind of two big things that we're tackling at the moment. Awesome. Awesome. So let's step back for a second. Talk to me about what excited you about product management and and how you got in specifically to product management, maybe what you love about product management. Yeah, it's a sort of a hard but an easy question at the same time, in the sense that there's so many parts of product management that really excited me. I think, like a lot of people, before I really got into product, I didn't really know that being in product was an option. It's not something that, you know, I studied um, a little bit of geography, maths, and economics at university. And I didn't really know that this was like a career option, like that people do this for a living. So I was very interested in technology always. I was always interested in how technology and and user experience kind of align together and how you only kind of notice bad user experience and, you know, products that I loved. I tried to understand how they worked and things like that. But also I was very interested in people and problems that people encountered, which I kind of talked a little bit about before when I was working at this school. There were just a lot of painful, painful problems that could be solved through amazing products if you knew what to build. And that's where I really got interested in in product is, is looking at problems that people face in kind of lots of different areas and how they can utilize and leverage different tools to solve those problems. And then if you were to try and extend those tools, how would you extend them? What other problems could you also erode or how could you make it easier or simpler for users to to solve that particular problem or have a solution to this particular thing? And that was always what I was doing, but I didn't realize that that had a name. And then as I learned more, kind of a lot younger talking to lots of people and understanding more about technology and startups, I realized that what I really loved doing actually had a name. So that's kind of when I started pursuing more of a career in product and trying to solve challenges and trying to understand users and trying to understand kind of the intersections between technology, engineering, and uh, different implementations and uh, design and businesses and what businesses 
could serve their customers with and how they could get more out of those customers, depending on what the tool was solving for them. And that sort of triumvirate led me to a career in product. Interesting. So let's dig into some of the career in product. One of the things that I I know you like to talk about is metrics and data. Talk to me about the, the KPI structure you put in place, why you did it, what it means to you. Yeah, so I guess for me, that sort of product can sometimes feel to some people, I think from the outside, a little bit hazy. And for me, I really believe in being able to measure and trying to evaluate progress towards where you're going, right? So if you want to democratize technology, especially and bring automation to kind of the people, as it were, how do you evaluate your progress towards doing that? So at Trey, I luckily have access to a huge amount of data. And it was sometimes hard to work out like what data matters. And, you know, the eternal OKR, you know, measure what matters was front and center of mind. And we wanted to get a little smart with the access to the data that we had and do something a little bit more advanced with it. Because I was finding that traditional sort of product metrics weren't necessarily holding so true for us at times, you know, monthly active users, daily active users, sometimes wasn't particularly helpful for us to measure. So what we did is we looked at all of the different data points that we have, we gave certain things different weightings. So if a user did one thing, it meant twice as much as if they did something else. And equally, if they did a different thing, it only meant half as much as something else that they might do. And all of these different actions, we sort of corralled together into one big aggregate score with three distinct pillars underneath. And that's our North Star metric now. So the distinct score for each user is what we term the user score. It's almost kind of like a user health score. And then beneath it, there's three particular pillars, which are, I think, a little unique to trade, but also could be quite applicable to lots of different product people. First one is engagement. So all of the data points around like, are they visiting your education page? We have a sort of LMS tool that we have to help uh, users understand what integration and automation actually means on Trey and our documentation platform and also our app and all of that sort of stuff. So are they really engaged there? And then secondarily, our value pillar, which is like, you know, how how much are they using of our tool? So for us, that's what we call tasks, which is API calls in a nutshell, and other things like how many workflows they have, how many things are they automating? And then finally, and this is the quite trade specific one, is capability. So it's like, how good is that user at building on Trey? So for us, it's like, how complex are the automations that this person builds? Are they just going to send a Slack message to a channel when someone emails them? Or are they going to do some pretty complex looping and branching with lots of different business logic? And are they able to build that out by themselves? Or do they need help? And so there's a bunch of different data points that underpin those three pillars, and they all roll up into one North Star metric, which is that user score. And then from there, we're able to do things like, okay, if we've got this cohort of users that all have this particular range of of user score, how might we move that up or down, depending on what the need is? And that's kind of how we structure it. So tell me how you how you got there. How did you get to structuring it that way? 
And, and do you have any advice for other product teams when they're figuring out their North Star metric? And I think those questions are probably going to be related, but I'll, I'll throw yeah, it Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, how did we get there is a great question. I mean, maybe I'm not describing it super succinctly, but I feel like I'm kind of simplifying it a little and not really talking about making it sound easy to do and not really talking about the year of figuring out that went into it, right? So... I did a presentation to a bunch of people in the product and engineering team when we kind of finalized this sort of framework that we built. And I had in it loads of pictures from like when I first joined the company of like whiteboards of like drawings that me and the head of data analytics had done. We joined about the same time when we were both trying to figure out this problem. And, you know, these pictures are two years old. It's kind of saying like, oh, we, we looked at this and we had a sort of hockey stick graph that we were drawing to try and say, okay, we expect that the learning curve is is going to be pretty steep and look something like this. So don't get me wrong, it took a long time. It took a long time to look at all of the data points that we had. It took a long time to understand which of those data points we thought mattered and indicated some sort of predictability of whether this was going to mean that the user would go on to be successful or not. And then we also looked at a lot of business metrics as well. So did our user score model actually correlate with things like customer success, expansion, churn, contraction of contracts? You know, did it correlate that users with a higher score went on to be really successful, not only as users, but also as customers and as customer accounts for the business? So that took a long time. It took about a year and it was absolutely a team effort. It was me It was another PM in my team who's really interested in data and brought to bear a lot of experience. She also has a PhD, which helped. And then also the head of data who knew the sort of wranglings that we would need to do in terms of the weightings and things like that. So don't be fooled by how easy I've made it sound. It's hard. And then in terms of advice, I think it really is a focus on progress rather than perfection. For me, it was just are we getting a little bit closer? Are we learning a little bit more than we did last month and the month before that? And in order to try and stay on track in the sort of creation of this North Star metric that took a lot of work is we just had weekly meetings where we just kept ourselves kind of to account of, hey, we were going to dig into this last week. We said we were going to. Did anyone manage to? Yes, I did a little bit. And just the practical nature of like always keeping this front of mind because we were always going to kind of report to each other as a team in a few days was really useful, uh, especially when people have got a lot on their plate and easily things kind of slip down the to-do list. And yeah, as I say, kind of progress over perfection. So, you know, starting small, like what are three things that matter for you as a product person when you know that the user has been successful? What three things have they done? Have they you know, successfully purchased something? Have they searched for something and found the right result? Have they stayed longer on your site than, you know, two minutes or 30 seconds or whatever it might be? And then thinking a bit broader and adding to that sort of cauldron of of data points that matter to you, and then starting to say which ones matter most, medium and least, and then how can we weight those things? That's kind of how I'd advise anyone to start. Now, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, uh, how many iterations of this did you go through? Or did you even kind of track it that way? And, and are you still iterating on it? Because I, I assume that, like, looking at how people engage and the complexity of the integrations, you know, you're probably still tweaking that, I, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, you guessed totally right. We are still tweaking it. In fact, I had a meeting 
yesterday where we talked about how it was quite clear that one of those pillars, the capability pillar that I talked about, just wasn't really doing doing the job. So quite specific to Trey, but if you are someone who's very technical and can use what we call the script connector, which is the ability to write code into a step in a workflow, you immediately get a higher point score than anyone else on that capability index. And actually it was quite, it was hiding a lot of data that that then meant that it was sort of distorting the metrics. So we're already saying, okay, this capability pillar and the data points that underpin it needs to be reworked. So it's never done, but I think that we're at a stage now where we can trust it to make decisions, which which is where I kind of always wanted to get to. In terms of number of iterations, we had one iteration of this same thing that I kind of called the skateboard version in a sort of constant pursuit of a sort of iterative mindset, right? You know, like you don't build a car to start off with if you want to get from A to B. You can build a skateboard relatively easily with a plank of wood and four wheels, well, eight actually. And that's kind of what we did first. And then we always knew it wasn't really fit for purpose and we were trying to iterate on it. We changed a few of the data points a little bit, but it took us a good year when we said, this really isn't working. We totally need to change it for us to kind of build this second iteration. Yeah, I imagine a skateboard with four wheels, it's kind of hard to turn. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> but you could try it once. It'll get yeah, you from I yeah, it, it, it depends. It depends how long A to B is. I guess just like a hundred <laughs> meters down the end of the road, that's not very far. So you know, as we're talking about metrics, one of the things I'm interested in these days is retention. Talk to me about retention. Is is it an important metric for product teams? Yeah, I mean, it's everything right now, right? Like we're is your metric. Is it customer successes metric? You know, talk. To- yeah, that's a good question. I mean, at the moment. And, and I guess hopefully going forward, it's very much at Trey anyway, it's very much a, a whole company metric and everybody is encouraged very much to kind of look at what they're doing and think front of mind, how can what I'm doing or how can what I'm doing at the moment impact or does it impact retention and how can I do more to try and impact retention? And I think that that message is, is a pretty easy one to follow, right? You know, in various kind of all hands and other meetings like that, if we're looking at, you know, a pretty basic bar graph that shows, you know, us retaining customers, and then, you know, the next day we're thinking about a issue that's happening in engineering that might be impacting customers or some customers in some small way, and maybe in a previous life, it wouldn't have had the same number of people in the room focusing on it or maybe it would have had different types of people in the room focusing on it now it's just very clear it's like this is impacting customers this is something that is impacting a significant number of customers we need to fix it as fast as we possibly can and that's a kind of an easy link right between the all hands message and the customer uh, the technical support team or the implementations team that might be having a half an hour stand up the next morning in terms of product it absolutely is for us a core metric. So obviously it's kind of a company goal. And then from a product OKR point of view, we've got specific aims around ensuring that we deliver functionality or we have a strategy for functionality and empowering our expansion teams so that 
customers can grow their accounts, can grow their usage on Trey, can encourage other people to join their Trey account. And we've seen, uh, or we specifically did a sort of strategic pivot around sort of March time, where we took a look at some of the things that we were doing, and we just evaluated them against who they were going to deliver value for. And if it wasn't, if it was maybe an internal tooling project, or it was something that was maybe a little bit more for the longer term, and customers wouldn't see value from that particular project in the next sort of two to three months, we put it on the back burner. And we looked specifically about projects that were going to deliver value to our customers as fast as possible. And the value was going to encourage them to not only grow their usage, but also well, not only to, to retain trade within their customer account, but also to grow their usage and expand. So that's kind of how we we approached it. And then we sort of, you know, cascade down with if we've got those kind of key objectives at the top product level, then each team beneath has specific metrics that they need to hit around how they can help deliver this project or expand their average number of users per organization or things like that. So what do you think has the biggest impact on retention? I mean, is it more of a product issue? Is it more of how you service a product? Is it more about getting value out of the product? How do you how do you stack rank some of those things? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing around retention is, is around the value. But in ter- I, I agree with the idea that it should be stack ranked as opposed to binary one or other. I think the top is is value because if your customers aren't getting value out of your product, and they can rip it out easily and no one would notice. That's the key thing that you need to fix if you want to retain those customers. But I think the second thing and a very close second is how you service those customers, right? Around like being that consultative voice, not just in a sort of salesy way, but just in a, you know, you want your customers to feel like they've got a best friend in their back pocket that they can rely on who's got their back, who's going to help them with challenges and problems that they face as a business and that they can call on you to help with that and that you've got their best interests at heart. And what we've seen is when you have the two of those things together, it's a very powerful and potent mix when it comes to retention. You know, they get a huge amount of value from your product and they rely on your team to help them survive as a business, especially through COVID. So for Trey, you know, we automate things. So we've seen customers come to us and essentially just kind of wringing their hands. Like we've had to lay off a huge number of staff and it has been incredibly painful and we need to find a way to plug these gaps and we don't know how to do it. And we've seen our kind of customer success team react with a lot of empathy, react with a lot of kind of compassion and help with people who are really struggling in their business and say, Hey, we'll take care of this. We're going to automate all of these problems away. We're going to help you build it out. We're going to create a strategy for you to rely on automation instead. And it's been really powerful to then kind of free up people within these businesses who might otherwise be struggling pretty hard to think a bit more strategically instead of focusing on kind of manual work that otherwise they'd need to do. And that is a kind of like weight off their shoulders, right? And they're, they're relying on our customer success team to, to provide that for them. So I think it has to be both. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too that when you talk about product, you're not talking about features, right? You're talking about mm. the value you're delivering there, which is more than just like what your product's capable of, but it's also enabling your customers to get that value out. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you can ship as many features as you want, but if they're not enabling and empowering your customers to do something that without your product they couldn't do, it kind of doesn't really matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would agree with that. I think that's a good point for people to make because a lot of people think about it as like, okay, well, our product is capable of doing X, but if your customer doesn't know how to use your product to do X, you've kind of missed the boat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think for me, that's something that, you know, took a bit of time to, well, not took a bit of time, but I realized, not to pat myself on the back, but um, (laughs) I realized, (laughs) I realized quite quickly that we needed to invest a little outside just our application, which I talked before a little bit about kind of our education strategy. And it led to us investing quite a lot in our documentation platform and also our something that we released this year called the Trey Academy, which is a platform that's a sort of learning and education tool that people can kind of do courses. And, you know, it's a little bit like a sort of Trey specific version of sort of a Udemy course. And I realized that in order for customers to kind of get that value, they really needed to be very proficient and capable on our product. And our product is a quite a tough one for people who've never used a general automation platform before to get to grips with. And me and the head of product design realized or knew always, but hadn't really kind of crystallized for us that it was going to take a lot longer than maybe the business needed it to for the actual app and, and user experience to be so intuitive that anybody could just drop in there from space with a you know nice onboarding journey and be immediately able to pick up the tool. We needed to do a bit more outside to provide access to folks who maybe didn't have necessarily the technical background. So that led to us kind of strategically thinking, okay, we need to do a bit more here to help people get the value and allow different kind of folks who previously were easily able to to get the value, we needed to kind of expand that because otherwise we were only going to have incredibly technical people building really complex and amazing things, but we wanted it to be more than that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a challenge always, right? How to give people the, the power, but at the same time do it in a way that people can easily access that power, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always it's. I think one of the biggest challenges product managers have is that that balance between usability and capability. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's also I find it so specific sometimes to the problem that your product solves for its users and the different personas of users who utilize your product. And so you really need to, as a product person, you really need to know your customers really well. And that involves more, right, than just looking at a lot of data and a lot of data points. It involves emailing, it involves Zoom calls, it involves meeting and knowing your customers, if you can, as much as possible and being able to drop them a line and say, hey, you know, we saw that this was a struggle or that was a struggle, can we talk about it and having a good relationship with them and and things like that. I think that's important that sometimes people miss when they're like, oh, I'm really data-driven. It's like, but is quantitative data all you do? Because there's qualitative data as well. And I think sometimes people miss that. Yeah, yeah. Or I hear a lot of people that just do qualitative, uh, which is, you know, has its own issues too. But yeah, I, exactly. With you, the balance of the two is important. And while we're talking about data, 
you know, when it becomes mm-hmm. becoming a, a data-driven product manager or data-informed, mm-hmm. whatever words you want to use, so I, I think the mm-hmm. words matter on one side, but people dwell on them a little too much. But data is important for product managers. Let's all agree on that. What are some of the mistakes you see product managers make with data? What do you see them get fooled by or what leads them down the wrong path? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a tough question. I think that when you rely too much on the data without the context of sometimes where the data comes from, that can be a mistake. You know, data hygiene is is something that lots of people or lots of companies struggle with. And it's always something to watch, right? You know, where has this data come from? How has it been collected? And if you don't ask those questions and you don't have answers to them, sometimes that data can lead you down a path that you might not otherwise want to go down. And also, I think questioning, if you don't question the data, I think that can be problematic if you kind of take it as gospel always. You know, for example, you might, you know, be a great power user of your product. Fantastic. You know it very well. You know your customers very well. And the data is showing you something that seems quite strange to you. You know, you might be looking at a funnel and it's showing that the 15% of users go from this flow to this page. And you're kind of like, really? That I, that seems strange to me. I wonder why that is. I wonder if that's actually the case. Because in my experience, that's nothing I've ever done as a user of my product, etc. And I think that if you just take that as face value without questioning it, and knowing your own product really well, that can be worrying. You just say, oh, okay, that's what they do. Okay, so we need to bring that page front and center. It's like, whoa, hold on. Like, actually, it could be, there might be a problem with the data, et cetera. So I think that that's a a big one. I think the other thing is looking sometimes too big and getting overwhelmed by the data is something that I've seen happen quite frequently and not being able to look at a data set that you can actually work with, but instead just saying, oh my God, there's so much data. It's really hard to draw out any conclusions from this. You know, this is incredibly overwhelming and they kind of just shut down. Whereas what I kind of say instead is try and whittle it down. Like what exactly are you looking at? Could you segment it by user a little bit to make it a bit more manageable? Could you segment it by time? Are you looking all time? Are you looking just in the last 30 days? Like, try and be a little tactical because there's a lot of data out there that can be overwhelming. And then lastly, I think I would say, I I mean, I kind of hesitate to say this a little bit, but I think um, if you don't have the amount of data that can give you sort of statistical significance or something, don't worry too much about it. I find sometimes people just say, well, I don't have enough data, so I can't make that decision. Or there aren't enough people who have actually engaged with this for us to make a really clear decision at this point. I think that you can then, in in that scenario, use data to inform your decision-making and always know that, you know, you're taking a little bit of a punt because you've only got, you know, 500 people or something, and maybe it's not enough to show an actual trend or an actual relationship. But I think just using it to inform and sort of advise you is still okay to do. I think people who just refuse to use data unless they've got a really statistically significant relationship, I think is a a mistake, but that's just my view. Yeah, no, I I think we see that a lot. And it's it's particularly hard with startups or with 
customers, even larger startups that have enterprise customers, a smaller number of customers looking at how much data they have, as opposed to say like a B2C company that might have a, a ton of data. Yeah. Like these kind of best judgment there, I think, right? Yeah, totally. I think it, it, you just need to use a bit of common sense. You know, it, as you say, if you're a small company, a small startup with one or two enterprise customers, and you're really trying to break into the enterprise market, yes, it's tough to make all of your decisions based on those the experiences that those two enterprise customers have had with maybe with their respective sort of 10 or 50 users each. But it's helpful to, to inform and to make a sort of common sense approach before just totally discounting it. So tell me about some interesting ways you've seen product managers use data or customer data. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's quite a few. What we have seen, which has been pretty interesting, is the way that one of the PMs in, in my team, she's fantastic. She works specifically looking at our connectors, which are uh, wrappers around an API. So we have one for Pendo. We have one for Slack, lots of other kind of service applications, tools that people have, Salesforce, et cetera. And what she does is she looks at how frequently those connectors are used by how many people and how fast, well, how many times it takes, how many tries it takes those users to get that connector to execute, right? So they've got an authentication, they've authentic. Uh, so let's use Pendo as an example. They've authenticated into Pendo and they've got their data flowing through the connector and they maybe make a, a call to a cohort of users or a segment of users from Pendo to put it into Marketo, for example. And what she's done is she's looked at the trends to see what are the hardest, quote unquote, connectors to use and what are the easiest, quote unquote, connectors to use that people can just pick up and instantly get to grips with. And we've seen kind of some connectors that are utilized by absolutely every customer. So sometimes an example of those might be Slack, which is very heavily used on our platform. And the correlation between number of users and how easy it is to use is very strong. So that's fantastic. Lots of people using it and they're finding it easy to use versus a connector, for example, like Oracle NetSuite, where it's really tough to get that used, but a lot of people are trying to use it. And so from then, what she can do is make really strong prioritization decisions to say, okay, we've got a lot of people who are trying to do this and they're not succeeding because it's taking them a long time, if ever, to get that thing to work. Okay, let's be really tactical and zoom in on that particular connector and potentially refactor it and have a benchmark of what we want to achieve through that refactor. And also let's look at the usability of it. So let's bring in the product design team and kind of brainstorm around how we can actually make that easier. Let's uh, use that as a sort of uh, diving board to then go into watching specific users, recording sessions, and kind of be really granular with the data and then make a sort of really specific path forward towards improving it and then be able to measure that as a result. So, you know, before the NetSuite rebuild has been done, a lot of people are trying to use it and a lot of people couldn't, but then it's in the middle. So we'll, we'll find out soon. Once it has been done, hopefully we'll see uh, still a large number of people trying to use it and much more of them be successful. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty exciting and interesting one that, that I've seen in my team. Well, thank you, Bella. This has been great. And we've got a lot more to cover. So we're going to split this into two parts. So 
Everyone out there, lovers of product, stay tuned for part two with Bella from Trey, coming soon.